find out kind of the origin of the problem. If you think about COVID, we've really tried to figure out where did this thing come from and what was the cause. You know, if one of my kids comes running towards me crying, I normally want to find out, you know, what happened, like what was the origin of that. And so that's what we're busy doing here um, in the book of Genesis. Genesis asks these questions, though, on a massive grand scale. I mean, it's questions like where does the universe come from? Um, Where does the human race come from? What is the origin of marriage? Why do we have different nations? Um, And so it's actually called the Book of Origins. That's sort of got its nickname. So, so far we've looked at the creation of the world, um, the creation of the animals, the plants, everything. We've seen the creation of man. We've seen work and rest last week. Today we're going to be looking at the creation of male and female in more detail, and then um, at the origin of marriage. And so here we are, uh, after a year of dealing with the stress that COVID has um, brought into each one of our lives, we're doing a talk on marriage. And I would say that marriages are under a lot of pressure at the moment. People who have been married for a long time, who have often not seen a lot of their spouse because they've been traveling or work, have been forced to be alongside one another in each other's space, trying to work and look after kids at the same time. It's been quite rough for a lot of married couples. So I think it's very appropriate that we talk about marriage at this time. But I'm also aware that there are many people who are not married and who are single right now. And so you might be sitting there feeling like, oh my goodness, why did I come to church tonight? Uh, Yeah, I should have looked at what the topic was. But I just want to urge you to lean in. Um, You might feel this is not a talk for you, but I really believe that it is. I think there's stuff that we can learn here um, about the design and, and the reason for marriage that will be good for every single one of us, no matter what space you're in. And so, lean in, guys. Today we're going to be looking at the very first marriage of all time, one that followed strict social distancing regulations. For those of you who did get married during lockdown, you had a very small number of guests allowed. Um, At this particular wedding, only God was present, plus a bunch of animals. (laughs) So, you know, you weren't alone. Guys, what we're going to see in this text today is that marriage was God's idea. It's not a a social construct. It wasn't brought about by culture, and it wasn't created for convenience. So before I keep rambling, let's actually go to the text where we're going to be spending most of our time tonight. So if you do have your Bible with you, uh, please take out Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to 25, and let's read it together. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. I mean, Jan and Ben, you thought it was difficult to name your little baby. Imagine having to name all the living creatures. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Right, that's the text for today. Hopefully you guys can remember that in Genesis chapter 1, we already saw male and female being created, okay? Um, Basically, in Genesis chapter 2, it's taking that 
creation of man and going into more detail, like how did it actually happen? So we saw in, in chapter 1, verse 27, said God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them, and then this is the detail. Um, I really do feel in my prep, uh, when I was thinking about you know, what God wants me to say, I really felt like God say that he wants to renew our minds and our thinking around this topic of gender and marriage. Um, it's such a big one that uh, I think our culture is very confused about at the moment. And I just want to take us to Romans 12, verse 2. The New Living Translation says, Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And I love that last part. His will for us is good. If we live our lives in line with his ways, we will experience his goodness towards us. And the reason that Paul wrote this to the Roman church was because they were actually copying the customs of the culture around them, of the pagans around them. And we need to stop and ask the question, what about us? Are we copying the behavior and the culture uh, that we have around us? I'd say, yeah, in many ways we are. We live in a very sexually confused culture where there's no difference between genders and you can be any gender you choose to be. We live in a culture that believes marriage can be between any two people, no matter what gender they are. In many ways, our culture places way too much emphasis on getting getting married. It's seen as the goal for your life in your 20s. It's about finding that person. But then at the exact same time, I feel like marriage has been discarded by our culture as um, not as practical as living together first. Um, and within marriages, what do we see? Within marriages, it's become about fighting for your rights and, and gaining happiness through this relationship. And at any point, if you feel that you aren't getting what you should get from your spouse, you can opt out. There's sort of this real opt-in, opt-out, like be true to your feelings, be true to your heart, you know, that's more important, and then sticking it out. And is that what God had in mind when he made us? And so, yeah, we're viewing gender and relationships, I feel, through these broken lenses, and God is wanting to give us fresh eyes tonight. So let's look, in, look at this text and really ask that God would renew our minds, renew our thinking. What did he design? What did he create? And we see that um, being described here in Genesis. So the structure for today, we've got three sort of sections. The first one's the biggest, so don't worry. The next two go quite quickly. We're going to be looking at in paradise, in reality, and then in Christ. Interesting thing, paradise is a Persian word for a garden or park. And so in paradise, Eden, obviously the Garden of Eden, that's just a little, you know, just a little value add there for you guys. Um, so let's start off, you know, I'm, I'm, my work is done here, basically. <laughs> Uh, let's start off by going through the text. We're gonna, for the first point, we're really just going to be unpacking it verse by verse. So what was God's original design as we've just read in Genesis chapter 2? So verse 18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So I don't know about you, but the first time I read this, what really jumped out to me was the fact that God said, It is not good. Okay, I've highlighted it there just to like help you guys out. It's not good that man should be alone. Um, whereas up until now, as we've seen the creation unfold, every paragraph is punctuated with the phrase, and the Lord saw that it was good. But now all of a sudden, God says, the Lord's, well, it says the Lord saw it was not good for the man to be alone. But here's Adam. He's in the midst of beautiful Eden. He's got, you know, divine organic fruit, beautiful scenery. He's got a pure, perfect relationship with God. 
Surely he didn't lack anything. Yet God said it's not good for man to be alone. What do we see here? Is that from the outset, before the fall, God designed us for relationship. He designed us for one another. He, 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 he built us for relationships. We were not created to be alone, but to enjoy relationships. And that's why this COVID season has been so hard, because we've been isolated from one another. Whereas in our design, there's this, this need for others. Okay, let's carry on. Now, before the ladies feel indignant at being called a helper, a suitable helper, I mean, let's just face it, we all think of like an assistant, like a downtrodden sort of doormat kind of assistant when we think of that word. You know, I'll make a suitable helper for him. You know, he gets to, be, gets to do what he wants and we'll sweep up behind. You know, that's not what's being said here. Thankfully, I can say, yeah, the, the Hebrew word they used for helper is actually the word Ezer, and that word speaks of strong reinforcements. So for those of you who've watched movies with battle scenes, this will hopefully be a helpful image for you. You're a, a troop, a small troop, and you're being overwhelmed by your enemy. Imagine you look up and you see reinforcements coming along. Uh, you, you all can picture like the army coming over the hill, right? They're coming along, and the relief you feel and the joy you feel at knowing that, okay, reinforcements are coming on. Without those reinforcements, you would not win. You need those strong reinforcements. That's what that word refers to, Ezer. It's a strong helper coming in. And this word, Ezer, is actually used to describe God. So we can see that in Psalm 121. It says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And we know God is not our personal assistant. He, <laughs> he is our strong helper. He is the one who is the maker of heaven and earth. And so that same word is used to describe God. Also in Psalm 33, it says, But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And again, there that word help is used to describe God. And if you look at that, this kind of help that God is providing is to keep alive in famine. And to deliver from death. Okay, so it's that strong kind of helper that we see here. It's not meaning assistant, but rather someone who's bringing supplementary strength. And then what about the word suitable? Because that also just feels like, well, a suitable helper. It's, a be- <laughs> it's, it's really beautiful when you, when you fully understand it. The Hebrew literally says, I will make a helper like opposite him. So is it like or is it opposite? <laughs> it's like opposite. And the best way to think about it is to think of two puzzle pieces. Now, if those two puzzle pieces were identical, they wouldn't fit into one another. Or if they were completely different, they wouldn't fit into one another. But they need to be rightly different in order to fit. And so that's what's meant there by suitable. Um, and by being like opposite to each other, male and female are non-interchangeable. Each gender has excellencies and glories and power and perspectives that the other does not have. And so we see that we are different by design, but we're both made in God's image. And so God's nature is displayed in that complementary nature of the two sexes. So let's keep looking at today's text. We go to verse 19. Now the Lord had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. 
And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. I mean, basically what they're saying is this how the story went. Animals kind of paraded past Adam. He named them, and every, you know, there just was no suitable helper. I mean, I think you guys can kind of put that all together there. Out of all the animals, none of them fitted, okay? Um, There was no suitable helper. And so God created a suitable helper, In verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So we see that God didn't create woman out of dust, which is interesting. And I think it's really, really important. He could have created man out of dust. He could have created woman out of dust. And then off we go, you know. But that's not the way that God created. Why? What is so relevant about um, him creating woman out of uh, the rib? What we see here is Adam gets put under general anesthetic. You know, local was just not going to cover it. He's completely asleep. He had nothing to do with it. He was not consciously there when this happened. It was fully a work of God. And while he was asleep, God took one of his ribs and then formed woman from it. Listen up. In order to build a woman, God had to make man incomplete. So woman has something that man needs, and man has something that woman needs. God could have created a woman from the dust, but yet he chose to remove part of Adam and form a woman from it. What was he doing? He's designed us to need one another. He's designed us to need one another. Um, and And the beauty of the rib is that it comes from Adam's side. You know, it doesn't uh, well, we'll get there now. No. <laughs> it comes from Adam's side. It, the, the point is that Adam and Eve are to come together side by side, not as one in front of the other, but as those who are equally valuable in God's eyes, who both reflect God's image, and together, because of their delightful differences, can bear God's image on earth. And so we're not made to compete with one another, but to complement one another. Uh, Matthew Henry made a famous comment on this passage. He said, Eve wasn't made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. How does this sort of like-opposite relationship work with Paul and I, where we sort of need one another? Well, I think about our, <laughs> our, um, when we lose things. So in our house, I would say I'm the better finder of things in general. And the reason is because when I walk through any space, I'm constantly noticing where everything is. And even though I'm not consciously doing it, I've just got an idea where, like, what's on what counter and, like, what's lying on the floor. There's always lots lying on the floor. Whereas when Paul walks through a room, he's oblivious. He could be walking right over leftover pizza on the floor and wouldn't really be aware of it. Um, which means when something's gone, gone missing, I generally uh, am the first to find it. Now, this is a gift, This is a delightful difference between the two of us, where I can love Paul and serve him by bringing that contribution. It's not something he needs to compete with me in, but I get to serve him in that way. But then what about Paul? He also brings something to the party. Budgeting. Budgeting. Oh my goodness, the zero budget. Spend no money. Um, That's the budget we have. Well, Paul's got a gift of staying really calm and unemotional, Uh, when thinking through problems, and that is such a gift to me because I tend to get a bit flappy and um, emotional, and so it is such a gift to me to be able to go to Paul and to be able to hear from him his perspective. I get to benefit from having his rational mind to think through my problems with, 
And so male and female, we made differently. We're both equally displaying God's image. The idea is that we draw alongside one another as complementary counterparts who don't need to compete with one another, but actually get to appreciate uh, one another and, and um, yeah, because we need one another. That's how God's made us. So now I want to take a moment to speak, like to just pause here and just speak specifically to those of you who are single, because up until now you might just kind of feel like, okay, well, where, did, where do I fit in here? Um, and to say that some of you are single by choice and some of you are single and it's not your choice. It's not actually where you would like to be um, at this time in your life. And I just want to acknowledge that hearing a talk on marriage might just be really hard for you. Um, but as we study Genesis and unpack God's design for marriage, it might, yeah, it might make you feel that unless you're married, you're now sort of a half-baked person or less than or you're not complete and that you miss out then on these complementary relationships. But what I do want to say is what we read here is that God designed us for relationships. We see that that happened before the fall, that God put this desire in our hearts for relationships. And there's nothing wrong with desiring to be married. In fact, marriage is a good and a wonderful thing. Yet, it's not the ultimate thing. Okay, we see that Christ chose to be single. He could have chosen to come differently. He could have chosen to be married. He could have chosen to have a family, but yet he chose to come as a single man, and he was by no means incomplete. He was, he by no means missed out um, in his life. And I suppose the next question is, well, if you never get married, does that then mean that you'll miss out on these like different relationships between men and women? And the answer is no, because whether you're married or not, we've been designed to need the opposite sex. So we need one another. It's the way God has designed it. We need each other's perspectives. We do. Uh, We need each other's gifts. And within the church community, there should be a dynamic between us as brothers and sisters, as fathers and mothers, that provides the space for us to express our complementary gifts, to express our unique contributions and our points of view. And we really want that to be true of this church family. And if it is not that way, then we really need to work on that. We need to become a family where singles do not feel alone and isolated, and where married couples invite singles over, and singles invite married couples over. There's a sense of just doing life together as brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, as family. And we really want to be that kind of community. For we read here, it's not good for man to be alone. God has designed us to have relationships with one another. So let's go back to the text. We're still working our way through the text, still on the first point. Like I said, it's the longest, so hang in there. It's going to be okay. We're on verse 20, 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And so we see God bringing Eve to Adam. It's the first sort of father of the bride moment where he gets to walk her um, towards Adam. And I don't know about you, but I think we can all agree it's such a breathtaking moment, hey, that if you've been to a wedding, that moment when the bride walks in and we never know who to look at. Do you look at the bride who's just looking so radiant or do you look at the groom and hope that you can see like some tears and he's sort of looking back and forth? Um, for, for Paul and I on our wedding day, so he had never cried ever in front of me. Apparently, the, the last time he had cried was when he watched the movie Tootsie. Um, Debbie, am I right? Were you there for that? Yeah, Debbie saw him cry, so I hadn't seen him cry yet. Um, I'm pleased to say he missed it up. I wouldn't say, like, cried, but he did miss it up. Um, actually, hilariously, he, he really cried at someone else's wedding when the bride walked down towards her groom. I don't know. Over time, he sort of got more in touch with his emotions, I guess. Um, 
But why is that such a powerful moment when, it, when this bride walks towards her groom? Let's face it, it is sort of that moment when time stands still. I want to answer that question a little bit later. Why is that such a profound moment? We'll come back to that. So let's look at how Adam responded to seeing his bride come towards him. This is what he did. He said the following, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so what we see here is the first bit of poetry recorded in the Bible. It's in indented form, and um, it's in style of poetry. We see Adam is the first man to serenade his lady. Uh, that word at last, he's saying at last, that word sort of means finally. This is what I've been waiting for. He's basically saying, she is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's a way of saying, I've found myself in you at last. By knowing you, I can know myself. And so this first marriage of all time takes place. And from then on, we see in verse 24, from now on, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So we see here that they are united in one flesh union. And this shows us that sexual intimacy was designed by God. It's within the first two chapters of the Bible it gets spoken about. And it was designed by God to, to be a, a way of um, two married people expressing their unity um, and their bond together. Because sex is glue, basically, that keeps a husband and his wife connected, which means that outside of marriage, it's going to bond you to someone who's not your spouse, and that can cause all kinds of harm. Sex was never designed to be a casual affair, which is why, why once you've had sex with someone, you just feel connected to them, um, even if you're no longer with them. And so we see here in Genesis, it's not an afterthought, it's not an add-on, it's right there in the beginning as we're looking at the origins here. Um, God created it, it's key to marriage, it's, a, it's the physical expression of two like opposites coming together, and we see that they were naked and they knew no shame. Okay, so there ends the lesson in marriage, they all lived happily after, we can head out, have a meal, hey? <laughs> That's where most romantic comedies end, right, at that point, but... Unfortunately not. Um, the honeymoon period did not last very long. It lasted like one verse. <laughs> um, and so we've just looked at, um, in paradise, sort of God's original design, and the next part that we're going to be looking at, well, what's it like in reality? Let's face it. What happened in the very next verse? We see Eve being led astray by the snake, and then also convincing Adam, and together they basically turn their backs on God and say, we don't trust you. We think you're holding out on us. We don't think you have the best in mind for us. And so we're going to go for the thing that you haven't given us. Um, and they decide to do things their own way. And before we get too judgmental of Adam and Eve, isn't that exactly the way we are? We see God's ways and we see his instructions. I mean, even here around gender and marriage. But we don't trust that they're really good. And we don't trust that they're really for our best. Um, we see here male and female created as equals, different by design, who need one another's strengths, yet we choose to compete with one another, and we try to gain superior status, these gender wars. Um, woman, and we speak specifically to you, in reality, how, how do we use our words to um, speak about men? Often we, maybe I'm just speaking about myself here, cut them down to size, you know, we we can disrespect them with our words. We try to take control, champ, trample the men in our lives so we can do things our way. What about men? How often do you sort of stand back 
and not step in, take responsibility, hoping someone else will step in on your behalf. Instead of rejoicing in the differences between the genders, our culture is trying to get rid of any differences. Men are applauded for getting in touch with their feminine side to the point where I think it's hard for men to know what it actually means to be a man. What about women? It feels like women are told, well, you need to act like a man if you want to be taken seriously in the workplace. What about marriage? Why isn't it um, they lived happily ever after? Well, our culture has made an idol out of marriage. We've taken this good thing that God designed, it is a good thing, and we've made it this ultimate thing, this thing that we believe we should, you know, work our whole lives in towards finding the one. And this can be especially true in church culture, where the marrieds appear to have, like, found this holy grail, and the unmarried can be made to feel that they're these half-complete people, which causes incredible discontent and results in people getting married to people that they shouldn't actually marry. Also, making an idol out of marriage means that we look to our spouse to fulfill us. We look to them to sort of make us complete. I mean, we enter marriage with these blissful expectations that, you know, it's just going to be perfect and amazing. And very early on, you realize that that's actually not the case. And these beautiful expectations become a heavy burden that you then place on your spouse. And what happens is it often results in divorce you know, well, you just don't fulfill me anymore and you don't actually make me happy anymore because these are my expectations and you're not meeting them. Or it re- results in a relational, uh, a transactional relationship where it's like, okay, you do that, I do this, and like, we'll do this for the kids and kind of work as, as co-workers. What about sex? What do we find in our culture? In reality, sex has become this cheap thing. It's freely available. You can hook up with anyone. Um, it's definitely happening outside of marriage, and then people getting married don't have sex, sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Sorry, I'm like going somewhere else in my head, yeah. Coming back, okay. Um, Let's be honest. (laughs) If we were in that garden, we would probably have said, thanks God for the guidelines, but we think we know better than you, and we also think you're holding out on us. And so sin then entered the world and we living in this fallen world now. Uh, we see that all that God designed in the beautiful design of male and female and marriage, it's, it's become tainted with shame and blame and rebellion and alienation and guilt. So imagine I ended there. I mean, that would be pretty sad. So thank goodness for three points in a sermon, the classic three points, because, guys, there is hope. <laughs> um, we've seen what God's original design was, in paradise. We've looked at what things look like in reality. And then finally, where do we find our hope? I mean, where do we go from here? And the answer is, we find our hope in Christ. Firstly, we don't find our hope in marriage. So whether you're single or whether you're married, we cannot put that kind of pressure on marriage. Marriage was never there designed to be the ultimate fulfilling experience. There is no perfect earthly marriage. So you can't put your hope in that. And something else that is key to realize here is that marriage is not about happiness. It's actually about holiness. God uses marriage to sharpen and to change and to transform you more into Christ-likeness. And this is an incredibly powerful truth. Paul and I have found with couples, if we can help them understand that marriage is not about their happiness, it's about their holiness, that they've been given the person of the opposite sex to become a mirror to their insecurities, to their unholy habits, to their behaviors that are not godly, 
Um, they've been given that sort of mirror, but then at the exact same time, they've been given a cheerleader, someone who can sort of encourage them, blow wind in their sails, you know, see sort of what God has for them and, and sort of encourage them in that way as they change and become more like Christ. So our hope is not found in marriage. Where do we find our hope? Our hope is found in imitating Christ. Where on earth did I get that from? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 to 2. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We're being called to be imitators of God because we are beloved children, and we are being called to walk in love, and that love that God's expecting us to walk in is the same love that Christ has shown towards us, that deeply sacrificial love that, that requires of us forgiveness, reconciliation, and ultimately a giving up of one's life. That's where you're going to find hope for your relationship. How on earth are you going to ma- manage that in marriage? Um, we had lots of giggles when I said that this morning, guys. How are you going to manage that? Because everyone's like, well, I don't know if I can manage that. That seems a bit impossible. Um, I can just, they just, there's so many things in our minds that sort of justify us to not live out this way. We kind of say, well, you haven't met my partner yet. You don't understand how selfish they are. And so if I live unselfishly towards them, then they're just going to take advantage of me. Um, if, yeah, I've tried to love them this way, but I'm just exhausted by the effort. Um, yeah, how are we actually going to do that? If I say that's where our hope lies in imitating Christ's love for us. Um, how about this? You think your marriage is bad. Maybe none of you think your marriage is bad. <laughs> but if you did think your marriage was bad, listen to this quote from Tim and Kathy Keller's book on marriage. God is the lover and spouse of his people, but we have given him the marriage from hell. God is in the longest lived, worst marriage in the history of the world. I'm just going to leave that with you because it's with you. <laughs> it's with me. Um, what, is, what, what, is, what are they referring to there? Basically, throughout Scripture, you'll see this picture of um, God's people being described as his bride. You know, we see it, in, we see it throughout Scripture, and then finally in Revelation. Um, we described as his bride. Let's look at, at Ephesians 5 later on. Paul actually quotes from Genesis. In verse 31, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's what we've just read. And he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what Paul is saying is that earthly marriages are but a symbol, a pointer, a taster of our marriage to Christ. And Andrew Wilson has really helped me to see this. So let's think about it. Let's picture a wedding We see the bride coming in. She's radiant. She's in a white, beautiful dress. Well, Jesus' death for our sins has made us spotless, has made us beautiful, has made us pure. What about the promises you make to your spouse? You say, I will forsake all others. We commit fully only to our spouse um, in sickness and in health. What about our relationship with Christ? We are given to him and to nobody else. We've made promises to each other. We say, Jesus says to us, never will I leave you or forsake you. And we reply to Jesus, I will forsake all gods in following you. 
What about the exchange of rings? In our union to Christ, there is an exchange of gifts. God gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit. What about the legal signing of the register? There is a legal moment in our relationship with Christ. God says that we are righteous in his sight. We are justified. And just as a man and a wife share all their possessions and they are united, we walk as united with Christ, where everything that he has, his love, his power, his goodness, becomes ours. And everything that we have, our sin, our shame, our past, become his. And we also give him access to all our possessions and our wealth. What about the wedding reception, when we get to celebrate with a feast and food together? Well, we have the bread and wine and the communion meal, where we get to celebrate our union to Christ. And just as a wife takes on her husband's surname, we too take on Christ's name and his identity. We become Christians, and two have become one. Isn't that profound, that this earthly marriage is actually a pointer and a taster to our union with Christ. It's a symbol for that union. Remember when I questioned earlier, why do we find it so, so sort of like time stands still when a bride walks towards her groom? And I, say, I think it's because there's something in us that recognizes that what we're seeing and witnessing has eternal value. There's something of eternity that happens in that moment, that profound mystery of our marriage to Christ. And ultimately, that is where our hope is found. Our hope is found in Christ, in our oneness with him. We are in him and he is in us. And because we have received grace, we then have grace to offer our spouse. I've said that our hope for marriage doesn't lie in marriage, or our, yeah, it lie, but it lies in imitating Christ, in imitating his sacrificial love. Well, that's just impossible unless you yourself have, have experienced that sacrificial love. And Jesus loved us, not because we were good, but in order to make us good. So remember Jesus' patience with you whenever you are ready to give up on a difficult spouse. In order to really stick with marriage, you need to over and over and over again look at your spouse and say, you have wronged me, but I wronged my great spouse, Jesus Christ. And he kept covering me. And he kept forgiving me. So I am loved enough that I can offer the same thing to you. And that's the only way you'll have patience for the journey. This spouse, Jesus Christ, is the only spouse who's going to save you. He's the only one who can really fulfill you. And your marriage to him is the surest foundation to your marriage to anyone else. I just want to end off with... um, Paul and our, Paul and, uh, my, our vows, the, what we said to one another, um, got married sort of just over 12 years ago. And Kyle was actually our videographer at the wedding. So, Kyle, you remember this moment, eh? <laughs> um, we promised in that moment, we sort of added it into the traditional vows. We said, I promise you, Paul, I said, I promise you, Paul, that I'm going to put Christ first and you second. And he said, Lee, I'm going to promise you that I'm going to put Christ first, and you second. And you can almost feel like the guests 
feeling like that is so unromantic and like weird, <laughs> uh, which it, I guess it was, you know, but it's the truth. That's basically what I'm saying here is that unless we put Christ first and unless he is the one who is fulfilling us and his love is kind of within us, we have nothing to offer our spouse um, in terms of that's being able to love them sacrificially. I need the Holy Spirit and that comes from my union with Christ. So I'm actually going to ask us to stand. Polly, you can come up. We're going to respond by singing together. Um, so for those of you who are single and long to be married, the, that's a good thing, you know. But it's, the message to you is that in Christ you are complete and that you have enough. Maybe those of you, some of you here are in great marriages um, the challenge to you, I guess, is that you wouldn't be looking. You guys can stand. You may as well just get the, get the blood flowing. Get the blood flowing, you know. Um, those of you in great marriages, the temptation might be to look to your spouse to be your everything and to complete you. An expectation that they can never fulfill. The call is to be aware of idolatry in marriage, where we put our spouse in place of Christ. And then those who are going through a difficult time in marriage... The call to you is to imitate Christ in loving your spouse patiently and unconditionally. And this is only possible as we experience Christ's unconditional love for us. And so we're going to sing the song in Christ alone because that is where our hope is found. Guys, it's not found in finding the one. It's found in Him alone. And we have that incredible relationship with Him and our union with Him. Um, So yeah, let's sing together. Thanks, Polly.